This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm Clint Jasper and it's time for a trip around a big country. This week we're joining the hop harvest in northern Tasmania. The aroma-packed flowers will be used in beer making and a local brewery is rewarding volunteer pickers with fresh beer for their efforts. We'll head to a small gym in central Queensland where young girls are being taught by a martial arts world champion. She's helping them to smash stereotypes and build confidence. And we'll catch up with members of a country women's association who are doing their bit to support local growers with a cooking competition that's all about using up pineapple. The CWA is renowned for cooking competitions and also our branch takes pride in supporting the local community and responding to local community needs. So what better way to support the local farmers and to promote CWA bakers but to include the whole community. Pineapple lovers, eat your heart out. With everything from pineapple cakes to chutneys to fritters, We'll hear about what's cooking as part of that drive to use up a glut of excess fruit. That's coming up. First today, flooding has impacted large parts of western New South Wales and along the Darling River, a number of properties have been cut off for months. But the water has also had a restorative impact on the landscape, as reporter Bill Orman discovered when he took a trip up the river. A free-flowing, full Darling River near Menindee is a spectacular sight, flooding paddocks for kilometres on end. An event like this comes roughly once in a decade and is a sight local savour. More than 200 kilometres of river has burst its banks since the middle of last year. It couldn't be more different to the Sick River, which suffered through the dramatic fish kills of 2019. Three years ago, we were in a solid drought, so we had no water in the river. <laughs> exactly opposite. But, you know, that's, that's living on the land. Barb Arnold has been boating in and out of her property, Bindara on the Darling, since June. It means if I want to go anywhere, it means a nine and a half K trip downstream to where my vehicle is. Barb runs goats on her station south of Menindee, but her business has essentially stopped since last year. We were caught out a little bit because how high it was going to come and how high it actually came was is a little bit different. So I've got goats spread around in different places, you know, I've got some over here on a hill and got some over there on a hill and a few in between over there and there and so yeah, it'll wait till the water goes down and put them all back together in in the right paddocks. The Darling River has reached levels not seen locally since 1976. With roads around the region cut and her homestead surrounded by water, it's meant Barb Arnold's station stay business has also been paused. She's hoping it'll restart in the middle of the year. Our farm stay business has been null and void since April or May or something like that. So once the roads are cut, the public can't use them, the public can't come. And so our business is put on hold. And so we've been on hold all that long time. Not that she's complaining. She's enjoyed the return of a huge number and variety of birds she hasn't seen since before the drought. We've got over 152 different species of bird that's come here. Not all live here all the year round, some just migrate here to to, um, nest, which is lovely. And while the birds have returned, so too have the fish. 
including the introduced and environmentally destructive carp. They have bred in epic proportions. Yes, it's been such a long flood, both in the Murray and in the Darling system, that carp have had essentially a non-stop two-year window to breed up. Ian Ellis works along the Darling River for New South Wales Fisheries. He saw the fish kills of 2019 and has watched carp numbers in the system explode. And when the rivers are in the channels, they don't breed up in huge numbers. They prefer this shallow stuff like where we're sitting now. They get out in that warm stuff and, and the adults will lay their eggs, which will sit in that warm water and, and develop very quickly. And while millions are breeding across the state, he says many will die over the coming months as water returns into the river. They've probably overdone it and there are too many of them. They haven't yet worked out in the 50, 60 years they've been here that when the water starts to drop, you're going to be stuck and you're going to dry out. So a lot of smaller fish are being stranded and dying, which is great. Um, but we will see a noticeable jump in the, in the population for the next three or four years. With the Menindee Lakes sitting at 103% capacity, it's not just carp benefiting from the conditions. Native species are also thriving. When they fill up, they're so nutritious, they're warm. Baby fish that drift into there don't have to fight the current, they're full of food. So you get this mass survival during flood events or high flow events. The Menindee Lakes and the Lower Darling are crucial to the Murray Cod and the Golden Perch that most people love. And I don't think you'll speak to anyone that isn't happy to see yabbies going nuts again at the moment. Ian and other fishery staff are monitoring the river as the water comes back into the Darling off the floodplains. They're particularly watching what oxygen levels are doing to avoid any potential blackwater events where fish suffocate. When the flood finally recedes, it's like when you've washed your dog, you pour the bucket out, the very last bit of water's got all the dirt and the muck in it. That's coming in as the flood recedes and that adds more carbon to the system, more sediment, more nutrients which help feed the algal blooms that are probably going to occur. not just fishery staff who are watching the river. Barkindji man Eddie Harris grew up on these banks north of Menindee at Wilcannia. Yeah, it's life, yeah. People always up and down to the river, fishing, camping. You know, our mob from away come home and set up camp down the river. He says when the river is running, the mood in town completely changes. I go away a lot, but I always come home to the river and uh, yeah, that's where I get all my, you know, strength from visions. Um, you know, when it's when it's flowing, we are more active on what we do in community here. Um, you know, black and white. Yeah. Eddie Harris says while the river is flowing, it's seen better days. He's hoping communities up and down the Murray-Darling Basin come together to ensure water continues to run into the future. I think we're all in this together. But if we could sit down and make sure that it keeps flowing, coming through, just by looking at the colour of the water, we know it's sick. While the river has dropped significantly, there are still solid flows and more than enough for the local kids. Back in. Next. 
It's a busy day in the kitchen as these women, who are members of the Queensland Country Women's Association, gather to swap recipes and taste each other's cooking. And there's one thing in common for all of the dishes being served up today. Pineapple. I'm Sharon Walters and I have made a pineapple sunshine cake. I've got pureed pineapple which has been spooned out. Good. And then round balls of cake as well. Yep. And the pineapple top for decoration. Hello, I'm Del Davis. I've been a member of CWA for 63 years. And this is the Glasshouse Slice. It's got a base, then we put pineapple jam on top, and then coconut. It's very tasty. <laughs> Thank you, Del Davis. Now, who made the pineapple fritters? Would you like to come over and introduce yourself? Sherry, I'm a new member of the CWA and I made the pineapple fritters and cheese, ham and pineapple fritters. Um, They're a savoury dish made with your pineapple, cinnamon sugar and coconut in the batter and fried up and you can make them easily at home. They look delicious. They are. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols, and I'm here in Biwa in Queensland's Sunshine Coast hinterland where members of the local branch of the Country Women's Association are doing their bit to promote local produce. It's been a horror season for pineapple growers in this region who have just battled through a glut of small fruit caused by the stress of last year's wet weather. It's inspired these women to turn pineapples into both sweet and savoury dishes and condiments and encourage others to do the same to support the industry. They'll be holding a pineapple cooking competition at an upcoming market. (laughs) And who's made the pineapple chutneys? Hello, my name's Katrina Odgers. I thought it'd be nice to make four or five different types of pineapple chutney and then maybe at the markets we actually have everyone try them and decide which one we're actually going to make as one of our main favourites lines. There's a pineapple and chilli one, we've got a pineapple and mustard and then we've got one that's a straight pineapple and then one that's got pineapple with raisins and currants in it so there's three completely different recipes. Just basically cut them up and cook them and bottle them and we're about to try them with scones. Oh, and the scones are good too. They're pineapple scones you've made. Yes, yes. I don't think I've had a pineapple scone. No, they're different. Their flavour's not as good as it should be. Oh, you oh, can't say, say that, that Katrina. Say that. Oh, delete that bit. <laughs> no, I find it changes the texture of the scones. So those ones are pineapple. These ones are just plain scones that we're having with. So you've got beautiful scones here that you've made to go with it? Yes, and they're still warm. So between the cold chutneys and our beautiful pineapple jam, we're all sneaking them at the moment, and they're just (laughs) divine with the beautiful pineapple jam and then a big lump of cream with it. Debbie Ives is the branch president, and she's also made an impressive-looking pineapple upside-down cake. It's a recipe that my mum shared from the UK, actually, so it's all come all the way from England. And, yes, used fresh pineapples on top and turned out quite good. And so this is the theme that you're trying to carry throughout, is you're actually using fresh pineapples to help the farmers. Absolutely. And, yes, every recipe that we've made today, we've used fresh pineapple. I think that possibly we're towards the end of the glut, so buy up now, make your pineapples, you know, buy pineapples, 
use them, freeze them. So what's the competition involve? So as part of our community market day, we're encouraging people to enter their fresh pineapple cakes, preserves, jams. What was the concept behind this whole pineapple cooking competition? Well, the CWA is renowned for cooking competitions and also our branch takes pride in you know, supporting the local community and responding to local community needs. So it, what better way to support the local farmers and to promote CWA bakers, but to include the whole community. Yeah. And tell me about the CWA here. What's the history? Well, the branch has been going for 75 years. Started in 1947. Yes, yeah, starting in 1947. And this it has. building was built in 1948. Yeah. So the building's been standing here since 1948. We take advantage of the prime location in town. Um, so we, yes, hold lots of community days, community markets, workshops, and our doors are always open. And for people who've never thought of joining, what would you say to them? Uh, come and have some fun. Like I think predominantly we're here for friendship and fun and learning these skills. Just when you think you know everything, there's always more to learn. So I'm Diane Tonkin-Taylor. I'm a member of the branch, but I'm also a country kitchens facilitator, which involves healthy eating. But I must confess I've never made a pineapple upside down cake before. There's actually a sauce to go with it, so you can have it as a dessert. We can cut some of it, yes. And you were asking before the trick when it comes out of the oven, you have to leave it in the pan itself. It was in a springform pan for 20 minutes. So basically you allowed it to go completely cool before you took it out of the pan. So I just need a plate, I think. Okay, give it a go. Okay. What do you think? Mm. I'm biased. I like it. <laughs> That's Diane Tonkin-Taylor enjoying success after baking her first pineapple upside-down cake, all part of a plan to get more people eating more pineapples. That story from Jennifer Nichols in Queensland's Sunshine Coast hinterland. And before that, Bill Ormond introduced us to some of the people living along the Darling River in the far west of New South Wales, where they've experienced back-to-back floods. You can find more on that story if you head online to the RN homepage, abc.net.au slash rn. Look for Big Country. I'm Clint Jasper with you for a Big Country here on RN. Still to come, we'll meet the young women enjoying success in a traditionally male-dominated martial art and the beer-loving community helping out with a volunteer-powered hop Harvest. Reporter Sarah Abbott went along to Seven Sheds Brewery in Railton in northwest Tasmania, where she spoke with co-owner Catherine Stark. We've got some people sitting out trying to find shady spots in this lovely sunshine um, and picking hops as they come down off the strings, off the trellis. So the main hop that we're picking today is Cascade which is a hop that originated in the United States. It's got some lovely fruity characters to it, some citrusy characters. And we'll also pick some Fuggle today. That's an old English hop variety named after the Fuggle family that developed it in the first place. Interesting. What has attendance to the hop picking day been like in the past? It has varied, but on a, on a good day, if the day starts with beautiful weather, we can have maybe 100, 150 people here. Today it was a bit cloudy and grey this morning, so not so many people about um, early in the day, but I think we'll fill up as the day progresses, yeah. yeah. As people realise it is going to be a stunning afternoon yes, after all. yep, and a, a great beer drinking weather, <laughs> hot sunny afternoon. And the pickers here are slowly, as they pick, earning themselves uh, beer and or bratwurst, aren't they? Yes. Yep, yep. Bratwurst sausage in a bun. That's the, the standard. And we've got uh, half a dozen different beers they can choose from. 
Are most of the people who come here, Catherine, locals or from further afield? Uh, we've got a mixture. So our hop pickers are all Tasmanians that we've got here today. Uh, we've got other visitors here that are just uh, tourists, so we've got some people from interstate. And we've also got some Tasmanians up there that are waiting for their lunch and, and they might go and pick some hops later, but um, they might not too. They've got the order wrong. <laughs> yes, uh, they've, been, um, they've been there in the past, so they just like to come and enjoy and relax. Can you give us an idea of the breakdown of the afternoon in terms of the hard work bit and the more relaxing part? So it depends how many people turn up. Um, some years we've had all the hops picked within a couple of hours. Other years there's still hops left at the end of the day and, and we'll, we'll probably keep the legget uh, for another week or two because it's not quite ready yet. So it's just the Fuggle and the Cascade hops that we're picking today. Um, I imagine that with this many people... Uh, it might take a bit longer or we might have a little bit left. It just depends how quickly they fill their buckets and whether they want to keep filling them or whether they'd like to relax and have a beer and a bratty. Um, our um, record for the fastest pickers was a pair of bean farmers, retired bean farmers, and they just came in and stripped them so quickly, bucket after bucket, and, um, yeah, never seen anything like it before or since. <laughs> Did you run out of beer? Uh, no, <laughs> there was only two of them, thank goodness. <laughs> And you mentioned before that some of the pickers come back year after year. Yes, yeah, um, quite a few of them do, do actually, yeah. That, I think, is just enjoying being part of that seasonality, marking the harvest. I mean, we, we're sort of, hops are all harvested by the equinox, the equal night and day, which is in another couple of weeks' time. So that sort of marks the end of the hop picking season. To me, That's it's all about the end of that sort of warm summer season as well, we, we, pick the hops and then we know it's then going to start getting colder and darker yeah. yeah and so the hops being picked today will end up becoming part of your beer when yes. um, soon after harvest after everything's finished we will make a hop harvest beer which we call elf and that's um, it's like an english brown ale a little bit stronger than average very lovely autumn sort of beer yeah and have you got a favorite part of the afternoon Oh, probably the end of it, <laughs> when I can sit down and actually sit down and enjoy a beer with some of our older hop pickers that have been around for a long time and, and we can sit and have a chat at the end of it and just enjoy the fruits of everyone's labours. Yeah, it's good. Hello. What's your name? I'm Mark. Mark, you look like an old hand in terms of picking. You've done this before. We were trying to work it out. It's more than 10 years. Yeah. yeah. And um, I don't know that it's made me quicker. But it certainly made me feel more at home here, that's, that's for sure. And the beer is so worth it. And what keeps bringing you back for this Harvest Day, Mark? Willie and Catherine are such good hosts. Willie is a genius. He makes really, really good beer that has interesting twists to it. Uh, the community event of picking together with other people. Like we've just met our neighbours today and it feels like we're old friends already, even just after a few hours, uh, and that's really strong. And every, every picking day is different. It's just really interesting, but it's a good community thing. Gets us outside, gets us talking to people, breathing the fresh air, and bringing in the harvest. Um, yeah, helping to bring in a harvest and know when you come back later on in the year, in the winter, you taste something that... Willie's concocted. Yes, I had something to do with that. Not that I can taste my sweat and tears in it, but, but yes. 
And so how does the rest of the afternoon from this point look to you, Mark? Got a game plan? Well, when we finish picking this bucket, I think I'll break the guitar out and we'll, we'll start up some live music and see what happens then. Slip go the shears. <laughs> My dad said, do you want to do gymnastics, ballet, dancing or kickboxing? I choose kickboxing. It's fun to do training because it always makes me nice and happy. It feels me more proud of myself. That's seven-year-old Pippa Banks. She's one of the young girls proving Muay Thai isn't just a boys sport anymore. And she's got a great role model to look up to in her coach, 17-year-old Georgia Ralphs. Georgia started the sport around the same age and is now a world champion in her division after competing in Turkey last year. Oh, I didn't, didn't believe it at first. It took me a couple of weeks to bring in that I actually won Worlds and that I'm a world champion now, but it was a crazy experience. When I got my hand raised, it was like I couldn't, like, I like frozen time. I was like, this is crazy. I actually did got this far. Hello, I'm Michelle Gately. I'm chatting to Georgia at a small gym in the central Queensland town of Gracemere, where she's sharing her love for the martial art. Having achieved one big dream in winning the world title, Georgia now has her sights set on something even bigger, encouraging more young girls to take up the sport. Georgia trained as a referee and took on roles coaching younger children, including Pippa, and her eight-year-old friend, Addie Hansel. I really want to be like um, Miss Georgia because I just want to be like her. So when I grow up, I can be just like her. She's like my big sister. Miss Georgia is a big hit with these girls and loves showing them what's possible. My favourite part at the moment is watching like the little kids enjoying it and then watching them grow up and like improve from like their first lesson to like every couple of years watch them, help them get in the ring and get that confidence to fight. The girls train at a gym run by Chloe McLaughlin. The number of girls in the classes at the gym is a huge contrast to when Chloe started Muay Thai, something that may not have happened if it wasn't for her brother. I was actually um, watching my brother train um, lots and I'd just finished dancing and his trainer at the time approached me and asked me if I'd like to have a job there just doing like, um, like making coffees and all the reception work and stuff and I thought, oh yeah, a bit of money. And then, yeah, he kind of approached me again whilst I was working and said, oh, jump on and start teaching and then I just took off and been doing it ever since. I had been doing dance for three years though, so it was a big choice, but I just fell in love with it and yeah, very, very dominant with boys. Um, still is very dominant with boys, um, a lot of like older men as well, so it was hard um, once I'd worked my way up the ranks over the years teaching the men because they're males and they didn't really want to be taught by a little girl, but the little girl could teach them a lot, so they kind of had to deal with it. For the children starting out, Muay Thai classes look a lot like games, learning some basic technique. Most of all though, it's about making the sport fun and giving kids a safe space. We aim for our gym to be not just a gym, but a family. So all our kids have a safe place to come. So we sometimes get kids here um, that have had really bad time at home or they've 
had a really bad past or a bad upbringing and stuff, and this is their safe place. So they come here not only to train, um, but because they know there's people here that they can talk to and they feel safe here. One of the questions Chloe gets asked most is how violent the sport is. Parents are a bit worried that, you know, it's just going to create their child to be a bully or, you know, to react badly at school and get into trouble at school. And it's not. It teaches them to learn discipline and respect and confidence so they know what they can and can't do at school and they have rules here where they know that, you know, we can't go home and punch into our brother even though he's, you know, annoying us. And I speak from experience, my brother's really annoying and um, they, they learn those rules and stuff and it, it changes them. And once the parents see that, they're happy. So what's George's advice for anyone interested in trying Muay Thai? Give it a go and never say that you can't do it unless you've tried it. Georgina Ralph's ending that story from Michelle Gately and Erin Semler in Gracemere in central Queensland. For more on that story and all of the stories on today's program, check out the Big Country program page. You'll find it on the RN homepage at abc.net.au slash rn. That's the show for today. I'm Clint Jasper and I'll talk to you again next week. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.